Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Major companies are pulling ads from Facebook because of its content moderation policies. Does this spell trouble for the social media network? Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, The Economist's finance editor, and coming up on today's show, investors' love for commercial property is being tested. No occupants, then no cash flow, and the value decline is going to be significant. And video games have seen record sales. Can they compete with sports in the long term? The up-and-coming consumer is watching us, so I think this only can grow. First, a growing number of big brands have pulled their advertisements from Facebook. It started with companies like the North Face and Patagonia. But now, more than 100 firms have joined, including Unilever, one of the biggest advertisers in America, Starbucks, Coca-Cola and Verizon. A boycott, led by some civil rights groups, urged advertisers to curb their spending on Facebook and other social media in July. Their aim is to change the way that Facebook and the other platforms moderate hateful content. Could this spark a crisis for the social media giant? Companies say they're getting involved in this boycott because they too want to help stamp out hate online, and I'm sure to some extent that's true. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. But they also care about their own image. And I think the thing with one of these boycotts is that it has a kind of snowballing effect, and we're seeing this now, where the more companies join, the greater the pressure becomes on other companies to join as well. Because I think people using Facebook now, if they see an ad from some brand or other, they might start to ask themselves, oh, you know, why is that company not joined the boycott? You know, don't they care about this stuff? So I think the bigger it gets, the bigger it gets. And there's another reason as well that companies might feel particularly willing to join a boycott like this this year, which is that given that we're heading into what looks like a real beast of a recession, lots of these companies were going to be cutting down on advertising anyway. And so if they can do that while also picking up credit for doing the right thing, well, that suits them quite well. Sounds quite convenient for them. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about which companies have joined and what we're talking about in terms of advertising spending. Well, there are some big companies. Uh, You mentioned Unilever. We've also got Starbucks, which last year was thought to be the biggest advertiser among the boycotters, the biggest advertiser on Facebook. Last year, it spent about $95 million on advertising. Unilever spent about half that on Facebook. And then you've got names like Hershey, the chocolate people, um, Best Buy, HP, Verizon, Diageo, Coca-Cola. These are all companies that last year spent more than $20 million each on Facebook. So potentially, you know, if these companies continue with the boycott, we're looking at, you know, it could be hundreds of millions of dollars lost. Uh, There is a question mark about how long this boycott's going to go on. Some companies have said they're going to do it all year long. Others have just said July. Others are, you know, leaving it open. So it's still to be determined and new companies are joining all the time. But it's fairly big money. The important thing is that you've got to keep this 
in perspective and see what it is as a share of all of Facebook's ad income. Because Facebook isn't like other advertisers. It has a huge long tail of tiny companies that advertises with it. It's got more than 7 million advertisers. And so losing a few really big names like this wouldn't hurt it in the way that it might hurt, say, a TV station. Facebook said last year that the top 100 advertisers on the platform account for less than 20% of all its advertising. So in some ways, it's actually quite well protected against a boycott like this. Does that mean that we haven't seen much of an effect then on Facebook's share price and indeed those of other social media platforms? There hasn't been a huge effect. I mean, it has dipped. It's down something like 8% on where it was a week ago. So the markets aren't just completely shrugging it off. But it's interesting, if you look at other social media firms as well, it isn't clear so far that anyone else has particularly been seen as a winner from this. Uh, Other social media firms also have, if anything, seen slight dips in their share price. So it seems that at the moment, at least, the market doesn't think that advertisers are ditching Facebook and taking up business with someone else. I suppose because these other social media firms are potentially in the same position. You know, any company that runs user-generated content has these problems of moderation. And so if advertisers desert Facebook and take their business instead to Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok or something like that, they potentially face similar problems there. I guess one possible exception to this would be other companies that aren't involved in user-generated stuff. So Amazon might be one example. You know, they don't face the same moderation problems. And so that could be one company to watch as a potential beneficiary from this. That's really interesting. And the fact that it's not clear who might benefit from this decision to pull advertising from social media, does that mean that Facebook doesn't have much incentive to respond? I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, so far, and you know, this is a developing story, so maybe they'll do more, but so far they haven't really changed things all that much. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has announced uh, one or two changes. For example, they've said that from now on, if politicians say something that would ordinarily violate Facebook's terms, they won't take that down because they think it's in the interests of free speech to leave politician statements up. But they will now add a little label saying that, you know, ordinarily speaking, we would have taken this down because it breaks our rules. But it's fairly minor stuff. So the relatively low key response from Facebook so far suggests that they don't really see this yet as being a huge, huge problem for them. And after all, they have the second largest market share of the US digital ad market. So you would think that once the recovery comes through, companies need them as much as they need the companies. I think that's right. Yeah. And I I mean, I mentioned earlier all these millions, literally millions of tiny advertisers on Facebook. And another thing to bear in mind about them is that a lot of these are companies which have really built themselves around Facebook. I mean, I don't know what your newsfeed is like, but mine is full of all these tiny companies selling direct to the consumer, which you don't see on, you know, on the high street. These aren't all companies that have a presence in, in real life, as it were. And so it's very hard for them to take their ads down from Facebook because their whole business model really is is based on advertising to people on Facebook or similar platforms. So I suspect that we're not going to see a real sea change in the business model of these companies. I'm very happy to be proven wrong, but at the moment, that's the way that it looks to me. So, Tom, this boycott, it sounds like not going to have a huge impact on the advertising landscape and on social media's business model. What do you think will I think there are two things that sort of related to this that could end up being quite influential. One is the politics. I mean, we're seeing in, in recent days various companies 
changing their positions on moderation. So Reddit has taken down a, a couple of groups which it said were promoting hate speech and Twitch, which is a live video streaming service, has done the same thing. And I don't think it's particularly because of the ad boycott thing, but I think that politically they may be detecting a sort of change in direction. I mean, increasingly, it looks likely that there's going to be a Democrat in the White House next year. And historically speaking, recently anyway, Democrats have been the ones who've been more enthusiastic about moderation and censorship than the Republicans who have been more hands off. So companies may be pivoting for political reasons. The other thing that I think companies like Facebook will want to keep an eye on is what this means for their recruitment policies, because their own staff are, in many cases, not very happy about their approach to these subjects. We've seen staff staging walkouts, signing petitions, that kind of thing. And if it makes it harder for Facebook to hire bright people, well, that's very bad news. And so they have to worry if it looks as if Facebook is becoming a kind of toxic brand to work for. Somebody I was talking to the other day compared it to Big Tobacco a few decades ago, you know, the the kind of place where you might be slightly embarrassed to tell your friends you work. If it becomes that kind of company, well, that is a problem for them because if they can't get bright people, they're going to struggle to be an innovative company. Tom Wainwright, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, you may not realise it, but a growing share of your savings and pensions pot has been channelled into commercial buildings, like offices, shops, hotels and warehouses. Over the past 20 years, commercial property has become an investment craze. The global stock of investable commercial property has quadrupled since the year 2000 to $32 trillion, and institutional investors hold more than a third of that. Originally, it was thought that these investments would provide solid returns long into the future. But that was until COVID. The outbreak of the coronavirus has exposed three major cracks in the commercial property market. Mathieu Favas is our finance correspondent. The first one was the most immediate, which was, along with other investment markets around the world, there was a slight sense of panic. So you saw transactions volumes scattered, so no buildings were changing hands. Second, but more importantly, a record number of tenants stopped paying rent because the lockdowns shuttered shops and restaurants and some offices as well. A number of businesses no longer had an income and the result is that perhaps a quarter of freestanding shops, maybe half of all mall tenants and 60% of restaurants in America and other male Western markets are not paying rent at the moment. And what that means in turn is that the landlords that were due to pay the rent sometimes are not paying the debt that they owe on their mortgages. And then lastly, this will have an impact on property values because these are typically valued as a sum of cash flows that they produce. If they no longer produce cash flows because no rent is coming through, then the value, of course, takes a knock. Tell us how significant the pandemic's effect on property values might be. One thing that we saw is that in March, listed stocks did take a big hit. But we saw that it was differentiated across sectors. Over time, though, people expect values to fall between well, 10 and 20%, uh, and the values of rents uh, between 5 and 10%. Now, the aggregate effect actually does not make a lot of sense, because what really matters is how each sector will perform. I wanted to find out more about the effects on different parts of the industry. So I spoke to Erin Stafford, a managing director at DBRS Morningstar. They are a rating agency. They rate transactions that are secured by mortgage loans. I started by asking her which types of property are in trouble. 
hotels, for example, with the shelter-in-place mandates across the United States where people have been told to stay home and not travel. You've got three different demand sectors that are impacting the hotels, right? You've got your leisure traveler, you've got your corporate or business traveler, and then you've got your conventions. Um, Conventions are canceled well into 2021. Corporate and business travel is significantly reduced to essential travel only. And now that some of those shelter-in-place mandates are lifting and the leisure traveler can get out and take their holidays and vacations, you're starting to see hotel occupancies pick up. But even that is going to be a little bit of a challenge because certain destination locations like Hawaii or Las Vegas that count on the international traveler. And if that international traveler can't get to the United States, well, even that leisure travel will be a little bit um, constrained. So, you know, value for any commercial real estate property is really linked to the cash flow that those properties are going to produce. And so no occupants, then no cash flow, and the value decline is, is going to be significant. And what about other sectors, Mathieu? It's not just hotels that are affected. No, she also mentioned retail as one sector that's uh, in great trouble. You know, you've had your tenants shut down. You've had tenant bankruptcies. Big names in the U.S. that we've seen that have filed bankruptcy are J.C. Penney, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew. And what happens there in the event of a bankruptcy is the tenants can you know, they may be reorganizing and trying to come out of bankruptcy, but they can reject the leases that are less profitable locations for them, and or they may be just liquidating entirely, and in which case they would reject those leases as well. And so what that does is it leaves some gaping holes or additional vacancies in our retail properties, in which case, again, you know, no leases, less cash flow, less cash flow, less value. And what about office space? It seems that some people might be quite happy to work from their bedrooms or their kitchens and not go into the office. What does that mean for investors in in office buildings? Well, that's another question I put up to Erin to answer. And uh, she she basically said it was better protected, but still not completely uh, out of uh, of trouble. There's still concern, I think, long term about office and as people come back to the workplace in in their office are they going to need more square footage which would be good for office or are they going to um, is this work from home model going to be more prevalent in which case maybe you need less space so i think office is still up in the air in terms of what happens long term from what erin says it looks like some investors will make losses on their commercial property holdings is this the end of the love affair if you like with commercial property well if you think about why investors invested in commercial property in the first place. So a lot of these investors are are pension funds, they're life insurers. And the reason why they like this type of assets, why they like to invest in buildings, is because they can then derive a fairly regular and stable revenue. So typically every month you will receive a rent. And this matches the payments that they themselves have to make to their, um, their pensioners, for example, or the people who are going to claim on their life insurance. What's happening now is putting some of that into question. So how safe are they? Uh, how secure are the returns on these investments? But the underlying principle that dictated the, the appetite for buildings, which is the fact that interest rates are so low at the moment, is still very valid today. So property will remain uh, a favorite choice. And so, Mathieu, investors' interest in commercial property will remain. But what do you think savers and fund trustees should be doing when they think about their approach to it? There's two major things that they need to, I guess, to to be doing more of. The first one is to 
understand the asset class better. They basically pile into it without understanding it enough, probably, which means now they don't have a very clear picture of where the losses may lie. So they need to to do a bit more homework to to understand where they could lose money, which is not easy in property because it's a very it's a very opaque asset class. It's better than it used to be to, to some extent, but it still remains the case that it's not so transparent. The second thing that they need to do is to make sure the assets they invest in, so the buildings they have invested in, are ready for the future, so to speak. So our lives are changing. We may you know, go back to the office less often than we, we went to the office before all this happened. We may shop more online. They need to make sure some of these buildings that they invested in can be turned around if they need to. Hotels may become apartments. Shopping malls may be turned into fulfillment centers for e-commerce. So all these measures that will insulate their buildings against uh, the uncertainty of uh, how we live in the future, they need to spend more time thinking about it and probably investing money in it. Mathieu Favas, thank you very much. You're welcome. And thanks to Erin Stafford. And you can read Mathieu's full report in this week's copy of The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer and subscribe for the best introductory offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And you can find the link in the show notes. Coming up after the break, how video games have boomed during lockdown. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And finally, before the pandemic, thousands of people flocked to sports stadia to watch players battle it out. But this year, it's been a different story. COVID-19 brought in-person matches to a halt. This hiatus meant upset for fans of basketball, cricket, football and more. But during lockdowns, eSports continued to thrive. In fact, according to Verizon, internet traffic for video games has increased by 75% since lockdown restrictions were imposed in America. What has really been good from this situation is that the viewership and demonstrated openness to Esports are really a digital entertainment platform as viable sports or as viable entertainment for a larger audience has been demonstrated. Nicola Point Jameson is the chief executive of Evil Geniuses, a North American esports organization. You see this with NASCAR's iRacing, you see it with the viewership numbers in many of our current leagues broadcast, and you even see it in the video game industry as a whole, where um, many of the public publishers have been showing record breaking Q1 and Q2 financial reporting. While that's been great, at the same time, going back to how we make money, even though we are a digital platform and a, a digital product, things like activations or our facilities or our partners and sponsors, those tend to not be digital products. Those are consumer product goods. And they've had their spending and their budgets impacted, which trickles down to us. And so esports has to have had to have been very creative in how we activate and engage our sponsors and partners to continue to drive brand value and marketing value, but do it in a safe and feasible way. And Nicole knows what she's talking about. Evil Geniuses is one of the oldest esports organisations in the world, founded in 1999. Esports, or competitive gaming, has changed and matured and grown 
quite significantly since that time period, especially if you consider technology advancements, as well as market changes and the professionalization of the space. And so for this org to survive and thrive today, we field five rosters and many top titles, including League of Legends, Counter-Strike, and Dota. And so we essentially operate similar to, for those that are completely unfamiliar with esports, think of a collegiate athletics department. You have a university brand that has multiple teams with distinct leagues and distinct tournament schedules. We operate the same way. One brand, multiple teams that travel the world and compete. Evil geniuses and hundred thieves going head to head. One looking to prove that they are the new villain in town. The other looking to keep it sounding like For many, winning isn't just about unlocking achievements. Folks, the racing is simulated, the competition and the stakes are real. It's going to take quite a bit of damage in response this time. It's also the chance to turn pro. The path to pro or how someone becomes a professional esports player is hard. And especially as teams become more mature and modeled like traditional sports in terms of not just compensation, but infrastructure around the player. It's very intensive. Like in any pro baseball player, you tend to start young. You tend to have it be your main focus of your life because mechanical skill in these games, it's not something that your average, oh, I am decent at Mario, will get you um, into a professional esports organization. You have to actually be the top in the world. In the pro scene, what that translates to is we bring in and recruit talent from any global space. We have, uh, I want to say, 40% of EG players are international and we bring them in-house, put them on teams, and they have to focus not just on being the best mechanical or technically skilled player, but collaborating, communicating effectively, and building those soft team sports similar skills to really thrive in their environment. And then we provide all the things that you, I think, wouldn't expect in gaming, but see commonly in pro sports, uh, nutrition, sports psychology, medical examinations, physical therapy, all those elements are also really important to being a pro player in the gaming scene. But while some gamers may be dedicating their lives to esports, will that alone bring in the revenue that the industry needs? How esports teams monetize is a little bit of the the golden question. What people trying are trying to achieve generally is like traditional sports. You have sponsorships, and you have broadcast or league revenue share. But the problem with esports is the cost to run and the cost for talent mimics the altitude and the compensation of many traditional sports, but the revenue hasn't gotten there yet because esports is less known. Most people don't still know what what is esports? What am I paying and sponsoring for kids to play video games in a basement? <laughs> and so what that has caused is a struggle to find and diversify revenue streams, which is in hand pushed innovation in this space. So some teams have leaned heavily into more, again, resonating with the fan demographic of esports, which tends to be under 30, tends to be very digitally native global fans. Have Many teams have leaned into other revenue streams beyond the traditional sports broadcast and league rev share or sponsorships into things like merchandising and apparel or even things like activations at a facility or live events, which, you know, have been impacted in the COVID scene. But hopefully when things get back to normal, will continue to be viable. During lockdowns, people longed for the return of traditional sports. 
As matches start to resume, can esports really compete? I think esports will overcome traditional sports. If you look at who watches us, terms of engagement, and the ease of accessing esports or esports entertainment, as well as the breadth of titles that really speak to a variety of youth, the up-and-coming consumer is watching us. They're not necessarily watching many older traditional sports. So I think this only can grow. Thanks to Nicole Lapointe Jameson. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Sharnbog in London. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.